Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Thinking about the evolution of evolution, I'm Andrew Graziano. And wondering at the sophistication of watches, I'm Derek Parsons. And welcome to episode 37, where we continue our series on philosophy of religion, this time with proofs of God from a design perspective, more and more fancy language, the teleological argument. But first, Mr. Parsons, how are you doing? Mm, I'm doing good. This is going to be one of those episodes where it publishes two days later. So this is very... This is very now. This uh, is on the cuff. Yeah. That's right. That's right. On the edge. So school starts. School starts Thursday. And, you know, I kind of love the inevitability of that. Like there's no way to get around it when that day comes and that particular time of day comes. I have no choice in the matter. Students will show up in my room whether I like it or not. So I'm excited about that. I love the, I love the, uh, well, it's a love and hate relationship. Uh, I love the beginning of the year because fresh starts and meeting new people. And I get to go through that whole, like, what do you think philosophy is conversation? And that's a lot of fun with students. Uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that has nothing to do with the actual instruction. Well, I guess it does, but there's lots of planning and meetings and all that stuff that lead up to the first day of school. And, and that's not my favorite thing of the job. But it's an important part of the job. Anyway, it's a busy time of the year. I'm uh, both overwhelmed and exhilarated at the same time. I don't know if, if we've talked about this before, but apart from being a philosophy teacher, you're, you're also kind of on that administrative side too, right? So oh, yeah. you're, de- you're dealing with all of that stuff as well on top of the, the perilous tightrope of philo- philosophical teaching. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, uh, I balance those two things as best I can. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. I do like I do like the other half of my job. You know, it's uh, it's working with students and supporting teachers and helping them out with their concerns and and helping them with improving instruction, and making it as best as it can. And that's all fun too. It's just different. It's a very positive answer. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I try to be positive. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, I feel like we have these cycles on this podcast where like we're always in school or we're always. Mm-hmm not in school like about the <laughs> right. same time uh so it's 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 funny that we're we're both about to go back to school i guess you've been back yeah. to school but i'm thinking next week i think no next week will be my last week of summer so i'll i'll be there a week before you moving back in final time around the least in undergraduate life and uh looking forward to it maybe not looking forward to summer ending but it'll be a fun fun year yeah yeah that's cool yeah, you know, most of our uh, guests are also in what I call the the educational cycle. Yeah, yeah. And so people in education understand the phases that you and I go through. So it's all just part of it. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> it's like a watch. It's like it's like a watch. It's predictable. You always know when the when when everything's going to happen with it because it's so beautifully designed. But before we get to all that silliness, we did run a poll last week on the two two of our Twitter accounts. <laughs> that sounds silly. We have an open door <laughs> philosophy Twitter and and then there's my Twitter. Uh, and we ran it on our Instagram as well. We we're just curious where our audience was on this. So so the poll was it had four four responses. Uh, the question is, do you believe in and then here are the options. 
a theistic God, a prime mover deistic God, an agnostic, or, or you're questioning about God, or no God at all. So that's atheism, right? So the results were interesting. Theistic God came in at 26%. Prime mover or deistic God, 6%. Agnostic questioning was the largest at 42%. And atheist or no God came in at 26%. So those results were really interesting to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised about this too. Something we talked about before we started recording was our surprise about the prime mover slash deistic God only getting 6%. I would have thought a lot more people would have been on that wagon. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, deism because I think that's something that will really revolve around today's topic more later. So if you don't know what that is, we'll definitely be talking about that more. Kind of surprised that uh, theistic God and no God are evenly split as well. So that's kind of funny. Um, And I was really shocked when I saw it by how much how many people are in uh, the agnostic and questioning? And we can talk more about that later too. But what do you think about it? Yeah, I was surprised at Prime Mover Deistic God as well. And there might have been an issue with people who are voting. Might not have been entirely familiar with what Prime Mover or Deistic God is. So maybe that skewed the results a little bit. Uh, or maybe it's just surprising to me because I probably fall closer to Prime Mover Deistic God than I do Theistic God. But agnostic questioning is is probably, I mean, it's not a surprise to me that sort of reflects society these days in the West when you combine agnostic and no God. Although I I would would want to look at those statistics before I start making claims about how much, how closely that mirrors it. But I was wondering if that's just a reflection of of Twitter, like a lot of agnostics are on Twitter. That's a kind of a joke. Well, no, I mean, so one of these was ran on my Twitter and my Twitter has a lot of philosophers that follow it. Yeah. And a lot of philosophers fall along agnostic or atheist lines. Certainly not all of them, but a lot of them do. So that may have skewed the results as well. Whereas the Instagram poll, like largely our audience is not academic. So that so that that may have influenced the results as well. Although frankly on the Instagram, the agnostic questioning was, was also the highest percentage. Yeah, so this is something I, I, I was thinking about when you were mentioning your the skew of your philosophers. And um, so there, I think we've talked about the Phil Papers survey before on our podcast, mm-hmm. but for people who aren't familiar, there's this kind of site. It's maybe like a LinkedIn for uh, philosophers, and they run a survey every 10 years or so. And I don't think this is the last survey, but I think this might have been around 2010. They asked philosophers a lot of questions, and one of them was God, theism, or atheism. And again, this isn't in a huge number, only 931 participants, but 72% lean towards atheism, Uh, about 15 lean towards theism, and 12 lean towards others. So I think in the philosophical world, it's it's very much skewed towards atheism. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, everyone, thanks for participating in that poll. This is just a reminder to hit us up on our Twitters and Instagram or email us your thoughts and questions related to philosophy or in the episodes that we've done at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. We'd love to hear about you. Ah, so now, you know, you might say that uh, that, that poll was intelligently designed. 
Uh, I'm not a poll maker, so it probably wasn't too intelligently designed. But anyway, our topic today is arguments for the existence of God from a design perspective. So let's get to that. All right. So as we said, our topic today is going to be the design argument or the teleological argument for the existence of God. So of course, I think the first thing that a lot of us are thinking is, what does teleological mean? So let me kick it to you, Mr. Parsons. What is a teleological argument? What does that mean? Yeah, well, this is really fundamental to the design argument, right? And, and it's one and the same. You might look at something in nature and say, wow, that's just so incredibly beautifully designed. Like we think about that when we think about the majesty. The majesty? I don't know, the incredible sophistication that is the human body from a physical perspective and how it all works, we think, wow, that's that's so incredibly designed. And so for the argument of design helping prove the existence of God, purpose is a, a big part of design. So again, like we'll get into it, but William Paley, he's this philosopher who came up with this argument. I guess I'm getting into it, aren't I? Anyway, <laughs> So William Paley, this philosopher, came up with this idea, you know, that that the universe is incredibly well designed in terms of its sophistication and natural laws and all of those types of things, which is cool. But a fundamental aspect of his argument for design was that anything that is designed must be designed for a purpose. And so when you go back to that word, telos which is where teleological comes from, we go back to Aristotle and his usage of the word. Yeah, so telos, when I think, you know, that's just a very important, it's very important for the ancients, I think, because they like to build upon a thing. When they're trying to figure out a function of a thing, they think about its telos or goal or purpose or aim. I think a good way to think about it is goal. Like what's a thing What's a thing supposed to do? What's its goal? What's its reason for existing? And I think that when we think about the teleological argument, you know, we can think about it in the same way. We're thinking, okay, uh, what purpose? What's the reason for the world existing? And then from that, or we can look at really what's the reason, what's the purpose of really anything, including the world, us, laws of the universe and we can look at those and say wow these are pretty complicated the aims of them are incredibly complex the goals of uh, laws of nature whatever super super complex and from that we can say okay well something i'm getting into it but maybe something you know if there's a goal and there's a purpose then something probably had to kind of push that purpose off to uh, make that purpose make that reason so I think that's where we get the uh, teleological argument. I want to throw this in. I want to give credit to my boy Cicero, though, for the argument, because I think I think everybody thinks of Paley for creating the watchmaker analogy or whatever. But uh, mm-hmm. Cicero, I think, came up with the he he called it in his on the nature of on the nature of the gods, de natura deorum. He said, when you see a sundial or water clock. And so I guess it all started off with Cicero. So it shouldn't be the watchmaker argument. It should be the sundial maker argument or the water clock maker <laughs> argument or something. So I have to give props. 
Uh, leave it to a classicist. <laughs> yeah, so no doubt design argument is something that existed well before William Paley. But yeah, he is the guy that everyone sort of points towards. And I'm not exactly sure why that is other than pocket watches were so incredibly sophisticated <laughs> or seemed so incredibly sophisticated in his time, which was the late 18th century, early 19th century. But to back up a little bit, basically what all this boils down to is that and it's called a couple of things, right? Sometimes you hear intelligent design or design argument or teleological argument. What all this boils down to is that nature, just nature here on earth, but like the entire laws of nature that govern the universe are so wonderfully built and wonderfully designed that the only solution could be that a, a God had created that. And that, of course, held for centuries. I mean, Cicero's talking about it. All the medievals talk about it. Even early, you know, when Newton was coming up with his theories, everyone uh, connected this back to to God because the, the laws were so mysterious that they existed at all. But then this idea of intelligent design was strongly challenged in the mid-19th century with Darwin's publication, Origin of Species. And again, we'll talk more about that in this episode. Before we get to that, uh, I am curious, Andrew, what's your experience with this particular argument as you're just growing up as, as a kid in Texas? I think the first time that I heard the argument was in your class, actually, and I thought it was a pretty persuasive argument. I think on the last episode on cosmological, I think I said that I found that argument very persuasive uh, and interesting. But I think before that, when I was in your class, I, I found this argument very persuasive and interesting, too. Hmm, that's interesting. So when I was growing up in Oklahoma, which I don't know what to call Oklahoma, it's not Southern, and it's not Midwestern, um, but it's kind of close to both. Anyway, it's certainly smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt. And, and I think uh, Protestants and Catholics have different views about this when it comes to evolution. But, you know, I can't paint with too broad of a brush there. Sure, but, uh, sure, but I grew sure. up. I grew up Protestant and it sort of was seemed intuitive to me that God had created the universe. What else could have possibly created a system as sophisticated as our planet and everything that's in it and the universe? And a lot of people do appeal to an intuitive type of argument when they talk about design. Um, of course, like most people, I was not aware of evolutionary arguments until I was in my teen years um, uh, and really? learned those. In, yeah, and learned those in school. And so that's not necessarily a counter argument to intelligent design, I suppose, but it's a scientific argument to that. And I just thought that was hogwash. <laughs> me and my, me and my uh, super evangelical certainty, certain of everything teenage type attitude, I thought that was ridiculous. Scientific explanations can't trump you know, what I've experienced with my, with my eyes and my senses here on this planet. And obviously something like the human body or the human eye or the way that, you know, mass is created perfectly so that the moon doesn't smash into the earth and the earth doesn't go flinging off into some other solar system and all that sort of stuff. I'm like, yeah, of course it's intelligently designed. So that's kind of my background with it. And I bring all that up because when I read philosophy of religion works, it seems to be, I mean, I mean I've read a, a number of places that of all the arguments for the existence of God, 
the design argument is the least convincing these days. Huh. Like like even theistic philosophers are like, yeah, it's an interesting argument, but but evolution is so the theory of evolution is so incredibly powerful that this particular argument it just doesn't hold water anymore. And so they look to other arguments like the cosmological or the ontological argument. Mm-hmm. But of course, it's still kicked around. Anyway, I, I don't know. That's just my background with it. And I was I was just kind of curious uh, as to what yours was. I know that some people, I know a lot of people probably have a similar experience that you did. I not, I didn't really have that experience when I, when I was learned about evolution or things like that. Obviously, I've talked about this a lot, but raised Catholic and I am Catholic. I don't know the position on it or anything. Yeah. And so with all that considered, especially in the United States, there has been this contention in religious communities regarding evolution, how it's taught in schools uh, and the challenge that it brings to religious claims about the design of the universe and God creating the universe. So, so I think that's just kind of what I experienced growing up in the particular circles that, that I was in with my family and community uh, that I grew up with. So I don't know, just thought that was interesting. Well, well, let's get into the argument of exactly why uh, people in my circle growing up uh, believe these types of things. And a lot of it is based on this philosopher, William Paley, and what he called natural theology. So William Paley lived in the 18th and early, very early 19th century. So this is pre-evolution, right? But only pre-evolution by about 50 years. And he's, like we said earlier, he's certainly not the first to propose a teleological argument for how our universe exists in the way that it exists. But his is perhaps most famous. So let's talk about watches and the 18th and 19th century. Earlier, Andrew mentioned water clocks and sundials, and that's how people kept time. But then eventually these very large I mean, like massive clocks were built in bell towers uh, in towns across Europe. And there were these monstrous things with huge gears and springs and levers and weights and just all this stuff. But it, but it kept time for the first time in history. Like we had this mechanism called a, a clock and it was keeping time, but it was huge and you couldn't put it in your pocket. You know, it's, it was in the church at the town square, and, and that's that. And that's how you kept time, and the bell would ring, and everyone would hear it, and yada, yada. But then, eventually, technology got to the point where it could take all of those pieces that make up the gigantic clock and produce them in a way that they're small enough that they could fit into something the size of, like, a silver dollar or something, if you're familiar with what a silver dollar is. A pocket watch, right? Not as small as the things we put on our wrists, but close, Right. And so all those gears and all those springs and levers and everything were perfectly tuned to keep time. And if one of those things became corrupted, the spring lost its springiness, maybe some of the teeth on, the, on a cog began to wear down, uh, it, it would begin to not keep perfect time. And so Paley used this analogy to discuss the design of the universe, and he compared God to a watchmaker, like a a watch does not just appear out of thin air. Someone creates that watch and they create it to work perfectly. So this is where he comes up with this idea, this analogy of God being the the watchmaker. So specifically to his thought experiment, if we'll call it that, 
he imagines, you know, you're walking on a beach and uh, the beach is filled with pebbles. And then there on the beach, you see a watch, a pocket watch. And you notice that, of course, the there's a great deal of difference between a pebble and a watch. Like a, a pebble doesn't require all of those things to make it work. Uh, a pebble is just a pebble. Um, a watch is an incredibly sophisticated piece of machinery. And certainly at the time, in the 19th, 18th, and 19th century, people were fascinated with this new tech, just like we're fascinated with our cell phones today, that we can fit these things in our pockets. So this is where we bring in the, the teleological aspect of it. So, so he said, like, the reason for this watch, like, it's, it's cool that it exists and everything, but there has to be a reason also, is that the reason that this watch exists, unlike the pedal, pebble, is that it's composed of many parts organized for a purpose. Like all those parts within the clock are, aren't just there for the heck of it. Uh, they're there for a purpose. And of course, the purpose is to be able to tell time. And so Paley says this is the hallmark of design, right? That, that not only is something beautifully designed, but it's beautifully designed for a purpose. And with the watch, make, uh, with the watch analogy, that purpose, of course, is to tell time. So he takes this analogy and then runs further with like, okay, so let's take the human eye, like the human eye. And again, I'm not a biologist or a scientist or anything, but let me tell you, the human eye constantly comes up in this argument. So it must be an incredibly sophisticated piece of equipment that is in our body, right? So, so he talks about the human eye is composed of so many parts, just like a watch, incredibly complex. And if it doesn't operate properly, that of course you get bad vision and stuff like that but that the eye is created for a purpose and that purpose is for us to be able to see. So that's how the teleological aspect ties in with this completely, with this argument. And then of course, for something to be designed, it must have had a designer. Things don't design themselves. So that's William Paley in a nutshell, the watchmaker theory. It's actually pretty interesting. I, I, I just realized this for, the, for when you're talking about uh, the eye, but Aristotle uses kind of a similar argument in saying that humans have a purpose. But, so I think that's pretty cool. That's probably how he probably influenced a little bit that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I forget if you mentioned this early on, but I think it's also, did, did you talk about how uh, the watch even got there in the first place was a, something to mention? Mm-mm. No, I didn't talk yeah. about that. So something cool too, you know, the, the watch, it is very complex it has all these working parts, but something to consider too is how the how the watch even got among those pebbles in the first place. You know, if you're just say we're like walking on the beach or something, and you just see this watch, you're gonna wonder, yeah, geez, this thing is weird. It's out of place. It's so complex. But also, how the heck did it get here? Did the waves bring it in? Did someone drop it in? Did it just randomly appear here? Well, that seems kind of unlikely. How is it so much different from these pebbles that are all around it? Why does the watch have a different purpose than all the pebbles? Probably so. Why do they have a different purpose? Uh, so there's a lot of different ways we can place the analogy into thinking about maybe ourselves, our world, in a lot of different things about our universe, or a lot of different things about our own existence, and not just our existence, but I mean the world's existence, the universe's existence, the laws of nature's existence. So a lot of ways we can take the analogy. I want to talk about our cell phones for a minute and in relation to this particular analogy and why why I think it was so powerful in its time. Okay, so pull this thing out of my pocket. It's a cell phone. I have no clue how that thing works. 
I don't have the faintest idea. I know that in order to charge it, I need to plug it into the wall, right? Now, how it charges, I don't really know. I know it has a rechargeable battery. I hear uh, when it shows up in my mailbox from Amazon or whatever, there's a warning label on it that it's ionized or something like that. I don't even know what that means. And certainly I have no clue how all the things inside of it work to make to make that phone work. Like it's a complete mystery to me. Yet I rely on it entirely, right? To make my life function. That's a really good example. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is why it was such a powerful analogy in Paley's time is that uh, pocket watches were very similar to that. I mean, think about the amount of people who like actually went up into a clock tower to see how a gigantic clock worked. No one, like hardly no one. And so that gigantic clock is already a mystery to those people for anyone who's like not a clockmaker or who services or, or maintains clocks. And then, uh, you know, then all of a sudden that thing is shrunk down to the size that it fits in your pocket. People are just completely amazed and, and like watchmakers, you know, that that was their job to make watches and fix watches. They were like magicians of their time. I mean, like they were considered these almost esoteric knowledge of how to make these things operate. So, so before, you know, we get too simplistic, like today, you know, we know how watches well, generally work and they even make watches that I think they're called skeleton watches where you can see all the parts and everything. And so we get it so much more. You got to think of it in terms of like your cell phone, because how our cell phones work was as much a mystery to them or to us as it was to them back then. It was like how watches actually worked. Yeah, that's a really good example, I think, of modernizing the, the watchmaker analogy. Yeah. Uh, and of course, like with all of our other arguments we've talked about the last couple of weeks, the, the final conclusion of this analogy, it's not really a syllogism like we've seen with others, but the, the yeah. conclusion of this analogy is that, so things that are designed must have a designer and that designer is God. So when we're thinking about using analogies as part of an argument, we need to make sure that those analogies are, are something that's relatable to us. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, the analogy is just like a cool story. So <laughs> let's let's think about let's think about the analogy for a second and see if it applies to. Uh, let's start off with human beings. So, Mr. Parsons, do human beings seem like they are intelligently designed? I mean, without having any knowledge, which again, my knowledge is very limited anyway when it comes to the human body. But I know there are many authorities that can talk about the sophistication of the human body. But yeah, just. Putting all that aside and pretending like it doesn't exist, when I think about the human body, yeah, I have no idea how this thing works, and it's incredible that it does. Yeah, I I took a physiology class in college once, which sounds weird to say, just like learning about like how all the blood moves, and then if you break down the blood, how all the cells in there move, and how how the energy is made for the cell, and all of that stuff. It's just like such a complex unit, and if one thing goes wrong your body's kind of screwed. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, I certainly agree with you. I'm sure uh, our biologists listening or the chemists or the physicists maybe have a better idea than us, but uh, it certainly seems complex to me and that the design for it at least is incredibly complex. So I think that's something that's definitely shareable in the analogy. Yeah, too. You know, we, we did some episodes on consciousness earlier this year and, you know, you're talking about the physical thing that is the brain, the organ that is the brain, and the billions of neurological 
fireworks that go off inside of there. I don't even know how to comprehend it. And, and even most uh, neurologists are are also completely amazed by it. And they understand how it works far greater than I do. So I think for that part of the analogy, it's a strong piece of it. So here's, I think, where the, the controversy may arise when we're comparing the human to the watch. Obviously, the well, it would seem like that a watch has a watchmaker. Uh, I think that's something that's pretty clear. I don't think many people would dispute that. But if we're trying to apply this analogy to humans, Mr. Parsons, does it seem like humans have a maker from that? Yeah. You know, it's always interesting when you think a couple episodes, oh, maybe his last episode, you know, I asked you like, well, where did you come from? You know, you're like my parents. So your parents didn't design you. Parents have the mechanisms in order to create you, you know, and so you, you just go this infinite regress back, 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 back. You know, a, a watch is designed by by somebody and created by somebody. So when it comes to like the creation of human beings, I mean, I guess in a way it's sort of a mechanistic thing that just happens uh, because our bodies are designed that way to to do those particular things. Yeah, I I was thinking about it until you you brought that up in a different way, but I think like I think your way might be better to think about it. We've been talking a lot about contingent and necessary things in the past and past part of our series. Contingent thing is something that does not have to exist. A necessary thing will end up end up making a contingent thing, I, I guess. I mean, I guess that's not necessary, but necessary thing necessarily has to exist. And so if we think about the watch and the watchmaker, those are two kind of contingent things. Mm. Uh, yeah. Okay. And for thinking about me, like as a human being, I'm a contingent thing. My parents are a contingent thing. So, and maybe the watchmaker might be analogous to that case. But if I'm thinking of, you know, the first human or the first thing to exist or whatever, that's a comparison between a contingent thing and a necessary thing. Because I guess if we're claiming that the maker of humans is some kind of God or intelligent design maker who made that, we're talking about something that's necessarily made. It doesn't, it's not contingent, doesn't have a maker. And so that, that, that is a little bit of a difference, I think. Could be wrong about that. Yeah, I think that is a difference. That's uh, a really interesting argument. I hadn't thought about contingent and necessary. And also this whole like well, where you come from thing. Uh, I said, you know, you come from your parents and that's a that is a result of a particular interaction biologically. And our bodies are engineered to to make those things right to make babies. But a lot of people will say that a child uh, is is in a way a miracle and that is created by God, stitched together by God, which is in contrast to the idea that, well, this is our physical body and our physical bodies are engineered to create more babies, given all the right. I think David Hume has a problem with the analogy too. that David Hume's not pleased with the uh, <laughs> Paley's watchmaker argument. Uh, you know, think, David Hume's yeah. always the the great uh, naysayer. He's He's always calling into question <laughs> which is why he's so useful for philosophy, but he can kind of be annoying too. I'm sure he was in his time. He was a contemporary of Paley, and I don't know if he specifically, uh, you know, it always says Hume's responses. I don't, I've never read that he directly responded to Paley, but they, they were contemporaries, although Paley would have been young and Hume would have been older. 
But nonetheless, uh, yeah, Hume calls into question this analogy. And one of his main arguments is man-made items like houses and watches and phones and all that sort of stuff uh, are just very different from things we find in nature. They're very different than a human Mm. being. So it's not a good analogy, he says. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's like we were saying for an analogy to to apply in an argument, there has to be some kind of similarity that the two share to make the analogy connect. That's what an analogy is, I, th- I think. Uh, and so if the analogies don't have any point of connection, then the analogy is just like a cool story. It's like uh, David yeah. Hume's pulling out the cool story, bro. Uh, right. <laughs> Well, and this is something really important to notice about any type of argument, whether, you know, good Lord, God forbid you get into an argument like on Twitter or Reddit or something. (laughs) But the arguments which people are, of course, trying to win are just filled with these types of analogies. People will make an analogy to try to make a point. And you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. But then if you look at the analogy closer, not always, but sometimes, if you look at the analogy closer, you're like, actually, it's a really bad analogy. It, it sort of makes sense in explanation. But when you think about it, you know, it doesn't. Yeah. And so whether it's politics or online arguing or whatever, yeah, yeah, the 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 uh, comment sections in social media is filled with these types of uh, would we call them false analogies? Is that is that the term? Yeah, I guess. I guess. I think analogies, I mean, I don't want us to be like an English literary review podcast, but I so so I think analogies, they definitely have their purpose in terms oh, of yeah. they're great as an explanation tool for for grasping mm-hmm. onto con for difficult concepts. Uh yeah, absolutely. Like, like religion, like I don't know, really anything, right? Like math, even philosophy too. Like like we've mm-hmm. we've I think we used an analogy at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, we use the analogy, of course, to explain the design argument too. But analogies might, when you're using them in an argument, you have to be very, very careful because uh, they definitely have to connect some way to the premise to help the premise reach the conclusion. So yeah, if, when next time you're Reddit argument, just be careful. <laughs> I mean, just don't get in an argument on Reddit is my advice. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably better advice. Yeah, definitely better advice. No, no, no it's true. It's true. Um, yeah. And, you know, if you think of thought experiments, which, of course, there's a lot of those in philosophy, and we even have had specific episodes on that. I mean, in a way, thought experiments are really just analogies uh, yeah. to try to explain uh, a concept. So, And that's why we're very critical of thought experiments, because they do need to hold up. I guess the last thing I'll say about Hume's problems with the analogy is he also says, you know, we we have observed man-made items being designed. You know, you think about all those shows on the whatever channel of like how it's made. We've observed how man-made things or items are designed, but we have no such experience of this in the case of, say, nature. We've never seen nature designed. Again, this is sort of Hume's just approach of of being critical of these types of arguments. So Hume has another argument, it's the causation argument. We've actually already covered the causation argument with other episodes on philosophy of religion, so I'm not going to revisit that right now, but it all has to do with things being caused in the universe. And the other Hume objection I do want to talk about is finite matter, infinite time. And we've talked a bit about infinity uh, in the cosmological episode, but we're going to revisit it here just a little bit. So Hume's objection here to this particular teleological argument relies 
on two basic assumptions that, that we make when we're talking about this argument. One, that time is infinite. And two, that matter is finite. So given these particular assumptions, Hume says, with the argument of like the universe is intelligently designed, he says it's inevitable that matter at some point would organize itself into a combination that appears to be designed. If we're talking about the universe is infinite and that matter comes and goes in and out of existence, that at some point, right, just like by random chance, in billions and billions of trillions of years, that at some point matter would arrange itself in a way that we would recognize as being designed. Yeah, so there's this really fun, I guess, statistical analogy maybe, or yeah, I guess it maybe it is an analogy, uh, which is funny. <laughs> oh, oh, here we go again. <laughs> the battle <laughs> but, an analogy with an analogy. Let's so go. there's... The, the the analogy states that it's called the infinite monkey theorem. Apparently, apparently, there's a fancy name for it. Um, and <laughs> the infinite monkey theorem. Yeah, I like that. That is a fancy name for it. Very good philosophy. <laughs> you did it. So it's it's really it's. <laughs> I'll say something funny about this in a second, but basically, yeah. So there's it's an, an infinite amount of time, and there's a monkey that's just like typing or like banging or you know, whatever the monkey's doing on a typewriter, uh, if there's an infinite set of time that that monkey's going to produce, you know, something good, like uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet or something like that. So there's a possibility, at least, of this uh, 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 monkey who's presumably has no rational capacity, more than likely has never read Shakespeare's Hamlet more than likely has uh, no idea how to type or like how to construct words or whatever. But there's a possibility at least that the monkey, given an infinite amount of time, could produce Shakespeare's Hamlet. Yeah, so I guess I guess this goes along with Mr. Parsons' analysis of the infinite time finite matter thing. If there's an infinite amount of space and there's an X amount of matter, then surely some kind of world like ours that's so complex could have been created. It, 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 it's at least possible. Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting about the, the monkey typewriter theorem. That it, that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to call it the infinite monkey. <laughs> that just sounds cooler. But the thing I think that's interesting about this uh, analogy, or rather the idea that it presents, is the argument is here that that this combination of whatever would be something that we recognize or appear to be designed. So there's, we're a part of this, right? So let's say like there is this infinite monkey typing on a typewriter and he does produce Hamlet. It might not actually be Shakespeare's Hamlet. In our time and place, given our context and situation, whatever that monkey produces, we, the people who are observing that production, might see it as something like Shakespeare's Hamlet, when in fact it may just be a bunch of jumbled, crazy monkey stuff. And so not only does it sort of refute this idea, possibility of infinite time that a monkey would create Hamlet, but it's also kind of refutes the idea that what we observe and what we see as laws of nature and what we see as an incredibly sophisticated universe as, as far as nature goes that's also just us observing it. And maybe we're not really 
of the capacity to understand that what we're seeing actually isn't that sophisticated in the great scope of the universe. There might be things far more sophisticated than our human bodies somewhere out there, yeah. right? And honestly, I've never thought about that until just this moment. Um, yeah. So, so part part of this analogy rests on us. We're the observers. We're the ones saying, "Wow, this is intelligently designed." When in fact, it may not be that great. Yeah, that's true. So the the reason people people won't be able to see this at home, but the reason I'm smiling is because I looked up this infinite monkey theorem, and apparently, <laughs> apparently, someone tried to re- replicate this experiment. Oh yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> in like the early two thousands. So something that's necessary for that uh, theorem to work is assuming that the monkeys are just like totally independent in what they're doing. Like they're not just going to press one button the entire time or like they're not going to have a preference. It's it's assuming total randomness, I guess. And so when they did this in 2002, the monkeys produced nothing but five total pages of S's. The lead (laughs) male monkey began striking the keyboard with a stone and other monkeys <laughs> followed by soiling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, monkeys are famous for, for slinging poo. So <laughs> that's really yeah, good. That's... I thought you were laughing because when I talk, I wave my arms around so much <laughs> that I that when I'm ex- trying to explain this concept of of infinite monkeys that uh, that I, I myself looked like a monkey. <laughs> no, that's not that's not what I was going for. That's that's funny too. <laughs> yeah, there's no guarantee. I mean, I guess if you, you know, if you're creating this analogy, you could be like, oh, yes, the monkey has no choice but to type on the typewriter. Yeah, there's all kinds of things like, yeah, well, if the monkey takes the typewriter and just throws it at the uh, the window so that it can escape the cage, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, well, you I- go all kinds of directions with it. Well, let me let me pull this back to uh, teleological, right? So does the monkey have a purpose? And and this is another criticism of, of the design argument, you know, just because something is beautifully designed. I mean, again, we're the ones ascribing purpose to these types of things. And, and although that makes logical sense in the way we do that, it, does the monkey have any purpose that he's typing on this typewriter? And maybe not. And that's why it appears to be intelligent because we link that there is some purpose to the monkey doing it. But uh, I don't know. I feel like we've been talking about monkeys a lot. Yeah, I think we have. Uh, <laughs> we might have set a record for the amount of time we've talked about monkeys on this show. It's too much monkey business. <laughs> yeah, we could yeah. create a new uh, a new uh, analogy and say like the uh, the infinite open door philosophy theorem <laughs> that at some point it's inevitable that Derek and Andrew will talk about monkeys for like twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> Let me just two things that I see wrong with the analogy. One. Kind of like the soiling monkey experiment. That's what I'll call it. But the monkeys aren't, it's just showing a flaw kind of with the idea of the theorem. And, and it could be anything other than monkeys, but there just seems like there's so much purpose in what creatures do and what things do. Mm-hmm. Even with a monkey that seems like such a thoughtless being, it just seems like even even they have like a goal, right? That they're trying to achieve. Yeah. And even like every kind of matter too seems to have some kind of purpose in it whether it's your blood cells or, or even you as a person so i don't know if that's one and then second which i think is a much stronger criticism like you said there's an underlying assumption that time is infinite 
And that's something we've kind of talked about on last episode. So check Mm -hmm. that out for more. But yeah, I think I think those are two. So Hume is just the ultimate skeptic, and he's going to call into question all of these types of things and and point out that we are the ones describing purpose and all this sort of stuff. You know, Andrew makes a very great point. It does seem that we have purpose. But, you know, Hume's always that one who's going to say like, yeah, but it might seem that way, but it could also not be the case. And those types of arguments kind of drive me nuts. It's like you're just calling something into question and creating some type of doubt, some tiny shred of doubt. And I don't think that necessarily obliterates the argument. It just creates a, a small bit of doubt. But that's that's what Hume does. And he's right to do it, I think. But it is annoying. <laughs> I wonder if people liked him in his lifetime. I don't actually know. I don't know either. He always seems kind of like a pompous Scottish guy. But Yeah, he has know. a nice wig. <laughs> he always has a very nice powdered wig in all of his, all of his paintings. Okay, well, let's get to the big one here that really shattered everything, and that's Charles Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. So I don't know that we really need to go in this in depth. I think a lot of people, most people are probably very familiar with this, maybe not on a deep, sophisticated level, but understand what it is. So basically, evolution by natural selection explains how complex organisms like us and the many other creatures on this planet and and plants complete with parts organized for a purpose, like evolution provides a purpose. It's to continue the species, perpetuate the species. We can argue if that's a good purpose, but nonetheless, it provides a purpose, right? And so these types of things can emerge from nature without a designer. They come about by natural selection. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to say about this, Andrew? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't think I have much to say on it. I will leave the natural selection evolution up to the listener to decide how they feel about that. But I think it's, you know, it's at least important to think about. So an excerpt from Charles Darwin's autobiography, he discusses Paley's argument. Mm. And he says, the old design argument in nature as given by Paley, which formerly seemed to me so conclusive fails now that the laws of natural selection have been discovered. We can no longer argue that, for instance, the beautiful hinge of a bivalue shell must have been made by an intelligent being like the hinge of a door by man. There seems to be no more design in the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than, of course, than in the course of which wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of natural fixed laws. And something interesting, too, is Darwin was, uh, he went to Cambridge for theology. So he was, mm. he, 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 he definitely was familiar with these, these things. Yeah. So what's interesting about this, too, is that for the last 170 years or so since Darwin published his work, and of course he published many other works after The Origin of Species, is that science has seemed to corroborate these conclusions in, in a far more sophisticated way than Darwin ever could have in the middle of the 19th century. You know, earlier I mentioned uh, I'm not a biologist, right? Obviously. And, but here's what I do know is I know plenty of people who are scientists and biologists, and then there is also a massive field of experts and authorities in science that that I can refer to and uh, assuming uh, all things they'd probably conclude that you know if they say uh, evolution by natural selection is is the thing that has happened then for me someone who doesn't have that type of level of depth of of knowledge with the great amount of work that has gone into it over the last 170 years 
I kind of have to accept that conclusion. And a lot of people in the philosophical world, well, we can argue as to whether or not I have to accept that conclusion. Hume would have a field day with that. <laughs> but um, Or any other philosopher, Andrew's probably going to tear me up. But, <laughs> but everything I read and hear uh, in philosophical circles about this particular design argument is that, yeah, it's really hard to refute the evolution by natural selection. It's such a explanatory theory that explains existence in such a sure way than say like, you know, William, William Paley does. I think it's, it's a good point. I don't want to say to accept the scientific principles uh, because scientists are wrong. They're wrong sometimes, but theory of evolution has been studied. Some of Darwin's hypotheses have been affirmed. Uh, some of them are still in question. Some have been uh, refuted. The Origin of Species, it's a difficult book. I've, I think I've read some chunks of it. Some of it, yeah, so, some of it has been refuted. Some of it's been proven. Some of it's still uh, hypothesized about. But definitely, if you're interested in this stuff, definitely check it out. Because if you're interested in evolution, check out the source material, I think. But something also to consider, too, is it's, an, it's not really an argument against God, I would say. And I think this is something that we need to be aware of because it, I'll explain why in a second. It's really just an argument against this watchmaker analogy argument. And so it would be a logical flaw if we say we're rejecting this argument and we reject the premise that God exists or there's an entire maker or a deistic God or whatever. We can't really reject that. We're just rejecting the argument. So just have to put some staple good logic in there. Yeah, and to kind of follow up with that, a lot of philosophers in philosophy of religion say that the theory of evolution undermines Paley's claim, but to say there are still arguments for design outside yeah. of this. And Catholic Church, officially, its official stance is that uh, it has no problem with the theory of evolution. They say it doesn't, uh, doesn't con conflict anything regarding uh, biblical yeah. thought, which is different from uh, some Protestant circles and evangelical circles. They will outright reject theory of evolution, whereas uh, Catholicism has found a way to incorporate that into its belief that doesn't contradict the existence of God. So yeah, I mean, depending on where you come from and, and what what your upbringing was in terms of uh, design and evolution and those particular arguments, I remember, you know, when I got to a certain age and I found out that the Catholic Church has incorporated this theory into their theology, I was like, well, how can that be? You know, I was like <laughs> completely skeptical of that to begin with. So it's more than just theory of evolution disproves God. The argument is more nuanced than that. Yeah. And, and even, and I think this is going to segue us into one of a more contemporary argument by Swinburne or Swinberg or Mr. Parsons is the uh, expert on I, these British I'd names. Say Swin. Swinburne. Say okay. Swin. I'll say I Swinburne right too. There. I think Darwin, who was a religious guy, like we mentioned, he kind of noted something uh, in The Origin of Species, which I think Swinburne might have picked up on. I don't know. I'm not him. He said, there's a grandeur of life with its several powers having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed laws of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms, must, most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. So I think kind of something we prefaced if the watchmaker analogy is just solely on the basis of 
humans and the purpose of humans and material things, maybe the watchmaker argument can necessarily fail. Maybe it fails on the basis of the theory of evolution, but maybe not so much if we look at kind of some laws of the universe like gravity. Yeah, that definitely segues into um, into Swinburne. So, so Swinburne, again, a contemporary philosopher in the philosophy of religion. He's been writing for about the last 50 years or so. And so he does have some things to say about evolution and the design argument. And so, so let me just kind of jump into it. It has to do with temporal order. So Swinburne accepts the science. Uh, he accepts that this evolution can explain the apparent design of things. He, he specifically mentions, again, the human eye. So Paley's teleological argument does not really succeed in proving God's existence. But, here's the but, <laughs> but Swinburne argues that we can't explain the laws of nature, which is temporal order, in the same way. So I'm just going to read from this. For example, the laws of gravity is such that it allows galaxies to form and planets to form within these galaxies and life to form on these planets. But if gravity had the opposite effect, it repelled matter, say, then life would never be able to form. Uh, If gravity was even slightly stronger, planets wouldn't be able to form. So how do we explain why these laws are the way they are? It's the why of the laws, not the how of the laws. And, and so we kind of talked about this back when we talked about panpsychism, which is uh, in our series on consciousness. So the panpsychist argument is that, or at least is partially based on the fact that they say science is very good at explaining how things work, but they don't explain why things work. So when you think about the laws of nature, we got a pretty good handle of like how things work, like how our bodies work, how the planets work, how the universe works in general, but doesn't explain why they work that way. But why are the laws of nature arranged in the way that they are? <laughs> you know, and so Swinburne takes us and kind of says, and, and I'm being probably too simplistic. So, you know, here comes the hate mail or whatever, but, <laughs> uh, but essentially the conclusion is here is like, so that means there must be some designer, right, still behind these laws of nature. And and that designer is God. So I got here, let, let me sum it up a little better. In the absence of a scientific explanation of temporal order, right, why laws of nature are the way they are, uh, Swinburne argues the best explanation is that, although not entirely provable, that it, it must be God. So it's more of like a probability type of argument. Like probably the best argument is that there is a God until science can prove something otherwise. I remember I I haven't read much on Swinburne in a while, ever since high school with when I was studying with you. So, but I liked him. I thought he was a cool guy. Um, I think he was on the our, our friends at the PanPsychast podcast recently. Oh yeah. So if you're interested, you should check that out. Something with... All of these, I don't know if you want to say anything more about this argument. Nah. I think something to be aware of, I'm sure our listeners have picked up, is that this argument is not, if it's true, it doesn't prove the existence of a triple A God, an all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful God. It just kind of proves that there's something that made the universe. Kind of like we've actually been talking about in our cosmological arguments and I think our ontological argument, too, it's not necessarily proof of a theistic God, uh, but rather just a prime mover. Well, you know, I don't want to disappoint everyone, but there's another theory out there 
called multiple <laughs> universes. And I don't know that we have time to dig into that today. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Future episode. But future episode. Future episode. Yeah, that's the great out for podcasters. So we've talked about it for an hour, Andrew. Uh, how do you feel about the the argument from design? I think it's a it's an interesting argument. I don't know about the watchmaker analogy, but I think the I've always thought uh, the Swinburne argument was interesting and maybe compelling, which it might not be that comforting. <laughs> I don't really know. That's all. So, what about you? Yeah, you know, it's a really interesting argument for me. I think through personal observation, yeah, the universe is incredibly amazing. And it does seem, you know, that, gosh, like something, something had to cause that. And it it doesn't seem like a monkey slapping on a typewriter is the the thing that did it. But also, you know, my limited scientific knowledge, I have to listen to other authorities on that matter. and, And, you know, those authorities seem to largely agree that the existence of things can be explained through evolutionary means. But I don't know that entirely refutes the argument. I do agree with law philosophers that this is the weakest of the arguments for the existence of God because so much of it is based on observation. Not that I don't take any stock in observation. I do uh, quite a lot. <laughs> Actually, I'm probably more <laughs> of an empiricist than I am an idealist. But I, th- I guess the thing to, to, to say here as we're wrapping it up is Uh, Even though I have said that this is the weakest argument and many philosophers say as well, it doesn't mean it's a dead argument. Uh, It's still a pretty active argument. Um, I mean, Swinburne has written about it recently and him and say people like Richard Dawkins have gone head to head on these types of things. So it's not a dead argument and uh, one worth one worth thinking about. So all of that being said, where do emails come from? Is there a creator? I just don't know. But, you know, emails do appear out of nowhere in our inboxes. So let's head over to the listener mail. All right, guys, we had some listener mail from Meredith in Texas, and she was listening to one of our older episodes, and she said this. Love the episode on identity, which is episode five. I was frustrated that I couldn't actually participate in the discussion. Hey, we love that. I mean, we'd love to discuss it with you, of course. But, uh, but we love that you were compelled enough to be frustrated that you couldn't participate. Uh, she c- continues on to say, I thought the bit on Telos, oh, hey, how about that? I thought the bit on Telos was really interesting, especially the sociological implications. The most obvious example would be a parent and child. The child is what makes a person a parent. That child as an individual has created a purpose for the parent that did not previously exist. We define ourselves very much by who we are to those we love. So thank you, Meredith, for that. What do you think, Andrew? I think it's a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool idea. Definitely our purpose in life or our telos changes with, uh, changes with the roles that we take on. Uh, Mm -hmm. For instance, if I take a job as like a forklift driver, my goal will be to drive a forklift. Well, if I am a mom or a dad, my purpose will be to care for the child. Well, so I think I think that's right. That I think the telos does does change, does change in who we are. I might push back. Well, I don't. I don't want to put. I don't want to push. But I don't necessarily want to say that the that it did not previously exist. I think it might exist in our role as human beings, especially mm. for the parent example. Like sort of a possibility. 
I think it's maybe like a dormant possibility because I think I do think that humans probably this might rile some people up. A lot of humans might have some kind of as most biological species, as Darwin would say, I think we have our purpose of reproduction and continuing on. So I think maybe for a lot of people that role of parent being a parent might exist as kind of a dormant telos in us. I might just push back on that one point about it not existing, but maybe it is a dormant existing, which is activated when that might approach on us. So just as as an annoying philosopher does, a criticism of a word that would seem kind of pointless. But yeah, I I definitely think that's a a great observation that I, I haven't thought about before. What do you think, Mr. Presence? Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Like a telos, like a human being, the telos as a human being, there could be multiple possibilities within a human being of what their telos is, depending on how their lives play out. But that particular, but like all of those things would be within what is possible for a human being. So it's possible that a human being would be a parent or could be a parent. And so if that possibility turns out to be true for that particular person, then that telos takes effect and they become a parent. My, my summarings rising what you, yeah, what you said? Yeah, I think correctly. so. So Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And hey, I just want to say I love this last line uh, just because I love love. Uh, she says, we define ourselves very much by who we are to those we love. And so there's some relational aspect there in this claim as well. Of course, we care for everyone. From a cosmopolitan aspect, we care for, or I hope we care for, our entire species and our planet. But it does point out the importance of those direct relationships that we have in our lives. We define ourselves very much by who we are to those we love. Yeah, that's a beautiful line. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, thanks, Meredith, so much for writing in. If you would like to be like Meredith and write in and tell us your comments and thoughts about episodes or or philosophy in general, just your philosophical questions and ideas, uh, hey, send us an email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Well, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today to our tuning argument. Just kidding. Our uh, design argument on the existence of God. Gotta embrace the pun. That's good. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening and being with us today. Yeah, I mean, I would say this was a beautifully designed <laughs> episode. So thank you for tuning in to this this beautifully designed episode. We're so happy that you did. You can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, and contact us through email, like I said earlier, at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Special shout out to our friend Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. It's really groovy, uh, and I'm sure it was intelligently designed. So thanks for that. No, no doubt. What a guy. All right. Well, that's it, everyone. Remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. See ya.